Good morning. And let's return back to the beginning of the series that we've been working through called Root Work. We've been talking through the practices that resist our cultural scripts and ideas. Remember that a script is what you would hand an actor in order for them to play the part that you want them to play. Our culture does the exact same thing. They hand us scripts of how we should be and how we should be acting and operating. So we've talked about how we must be with Jesus before doing for him. It's out of a well of time with God that we can actually act on his behalf and in his world. We've talked about how our culture deforms us, while what we truly need is to be reformed in our roots, in a life with Jesus that will then become whole and integrated. So I'm wanting us to see, yes, that identifying the culture is important, but only for a purpose. The purpose will be for living for Jesus as the alternative way of life to our world and culture. That alternative will be marked by the spiritual habits that we already know really well, like reading your Bible, praying, coming to church, tithing, scripture memory, whatever it might be. You guys know these pretty well. These are the things um, th that have marked our spiritual habits and spiritual disciplines for a long, long time. But we've also talked through some other, what I've called, resistance practices. Things like slowing down, Sabbath, silent prayer, interior examination, hospitality, telling the truth in love. Which, by the way, listen to the podcast this week. We'll tell some truth. It may not be so loving. Anyways, and announce the gospel. Now, what all of these together produce is a more present life to God, to ourselves, and, by way of that, to others. So that presence then directs our posture to be people on mission for Christ. Our mission is to be witnesses as we make disciples who make. Thank you, guys. So let's return back to Psalm 1 and remember this important idea of root work before fruit work. Psalm 1, 1 through 6. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. In other words, don't be formed by what everyone else does. Don't be formed by your culture. Verse 2. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. Our formation will happen as we encounter the person of Jesus through his word and in his presence. Verse 3, that person, the blessed one, is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff. Notice the difference there. A planted tree, deeply rooted and chaff that is able to be blown away by the wind. See, the shallow lives that our culture forms are ghostly and starved. They are not rooted in the design and purpose that humanity was made, which is to be angled mirrors, image bearers of God. We reflect his glory to the world and reflect the praise and glory of the world back to him. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Verse 6, I've been memorizing this one. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. See, the Lord will honor your pursuit of him by guiding you 
empowering you and producing more wholeness in you, he will reform you at your roots. The righteous life is like this tree pictured in Psalm 1, whose input is God's presence. From that input, our output will then be the healthy fruit of witness, being with Jesus to then do for him in the world. This is a healthy life system. This is the kind of follower that Jesus is after. Now, of course, he loves the whole world, and he loves you right where you are in your spiritual journey right now, and he will love you no more or no less because he loves you to the ultimate extent possible right now. But because he loves you that much, he knows that when you turn your attention to the root work of a deep life with him, the more real life you'll actually experience. It's sort of mysterious, so it's like marriage a little bit. You're one flesh, but you're still individual. You and your spouse are linked by covenant, working together as one. You're more than you could be alone. Gentlemen and women, amen? You're more than you could be by yourself. But you're also better individuals because of the relationship that you share. I know that's true in my marriage. I know that I'm better because Rachel pushes me to be more like Jesus. Her wisdom and discernment have gifted me with more emotional health, greater passion for family, increasing care for others, and a greater love for God. We are one, which means we are tied together in covenant, working together for the bettering of the other. But I'm also better individually because of her. Now, this is similar to our relationship with Christ. We are better as we strive for what he wants in us and for us. And Jesus and the church operate this way as well. We are more than we could be because of God, and we're better individually because of the transformation that he's doing within us through the Spirit. This interaction between us and God is driving us towards the goal of a deeply rooted network with one another. Now, as a church, God wants to reform our individual systems through personal renewal and then link us together to form an entrenched system of roots with one another. We then work together to bear the fruit that God is producing in us. And as Psalm 1-3 says, we'll do that in season when he deems ready. Now, I think of the California redwoods as we're talking about roots and deeply rooted system. Redwoods can grow to be up to 300 feet tall. Has anybody been to California and seen the redwoods? Are they, aren't they just amazing? They're incredible. 300 feet tall. I'm not even sure there's a building in Fort Worth that tall. Anyways, 300 feet tall and can be as wide as 20 feet. These colossal trees do something rather amazing though. Their roots connect and intertwine to help bear the load of one another. Each tree essentially roots itself to another tree for the purpose of support as they grow. This is a picture of the church. The individual grows deep in Christ, but then they also intertwine with others. Their growth blesses and sustains others. So both the individual and the body support and benefit one another. God wants each of us to be deeply rooted and intertwined with one another as he forms the resistance to our world's formation. And just like California redwoods can resist the storms of life, so must we. Through the presence of God, which is in me individually and in us corporately. 
So we must become a resistance that resists the way our world forms us to be. That resistance will then live out the alternative way of life that we really spoke on last week. In the Old Testament, this resistance is called a remnant. Somebody say remnant. I'm not talking about Revenant, the movie that Leonardo finally won an Oscar for. Okay, not talking about fighting bears. That's not what I'm asking you to do today. I'm talking about the remnant. We first see mention of the remnant in 1 Kings 19. Elijah has just confronted the evil king Ahaz and queen Jezebel. In an amazing moment of God's power, Elijah calls down fire from heaven and proves that Yahweh Elohim is greater than Baal. He then kills the 450 prophets of Baal, and it seems that Elijah and God are about to reform the nation as we've seen happen earlier in the book of Judges. But Jezebel, oof, Jezebel, she threatens Elijah's life, and in fear he flees to the mountains. Exhausted and emotionally spent, he cries out to God in his anguish for his quick death. God tells him to eat a little food that crows miraculously provide. Then he tells him to take a nap. By the way, I think that's probably pretty good emotional health advice for you right there. Eat a little bit of food, take a nap, and some of the anguish that you're going through, that might be some of the best transformational experience that you can receive. Take a little nap, have a little food. Anyways, God then asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah says in verse 14, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left And now they are trying to kill me too. Then God tells Elijah to stand at the face of the mountain that he's hiding in because his presence is about to pass by. His presence passed by and there's these amazing signs that occur. There's fire. Then there's an earthquake that shakes the mountain. There's a mighty wind that breaks the mountain apart. But God's relational presence wasn't in the heavy, major, miraculous events. Instead, God comes in a still, small voice. 1 Kings 19, 13. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He asks a second time. Elijah once again replies, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Yet, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Notice that Elijah says the exact same thing to God's initial question. It's like he has this answer already produced. It's scripted out. It's the only thing that he can think to say because he's so emotionally exhausted and in so much anguish. What his response shows us is that his ministry and his life really is centered on only himself to the exclusion of all else. Now, I don't want to be overly critical of Elijah. He's just received death threats from the powers at B. But what I would like to point out is that his focus is truly on himself. Even after two 
miraculous moments of God's power on display. So first, God tells Elijah to go back the way he came, and that is counterintuitive. Elijah just fled that situation, but now God is telling him to go back. Now, I think there's something to learn from this. Not that we should go back to harmful situations in our lives, but after a period of withdrawal where we've been in God's presence, the next step is to return armed with what we've experienced with him. This is what we're supposed to do. We spend time being with God for the purpose of re-engagement to our world. When our life systems receive the help that only God's presence can give, the next step is not to just pat ourselves on the back and go about our day as if nothing has changed within us, but instead it is to engage where God is leading. And guess what? God is leading you to your life. Not to some other idyllic life that you think should be happening where you have six-pack abs and money everywhere. You know what I'm saying? He's talking about the real life that you are in right now. He wants you to go back to that real life, to re-engage with him for him. God doesn't want to have us leave our lives. He wants us to be immersed in them, living from time with him. So next, God begins to pinpoint and speak to the fears that Elijah is alone. He gives Elijah a path forward in making a disciple who will succeed him in Elisha. And he tells him that there is a remnant, a portion of those in Israel who have not bowed down, and I love the, the, the other phrase, have not kissed Baal. The remnant of 7,000 out of a whole nation, they are the true followers of God whom he wants to use to spark reformation and renewal. They are the resistors of their age. We must become this kind of resistance in our age. Now, it's not as though God can't or won't use anybody else besides those who have resisted their age. Of course he will. But what marks the remnant as different is that they are eager. They are those who have made a radical commitment to follow God no matter what. They are those who have oriented their whole lives around a deeply rooted life in God. They are those who have a healthy life system where God is their primary input. Mark Sayers in his book, Reappearing Church, defines the remnant this way. Those who are deeply devoted and faithful, their discipleship is at the core of their being. They are not consumers, but contenders, carrying the lion's share of the ministry work in a Christian community. They operate not through a sense of duty, but rather genuine, spirit-filled empowerment. Amen. Some may be leaders and key influencers within their church, but others may have no uh, positional power whatsoever. This is a great definition, and it stands in contrast to what Mark Sayers would call a churchgoer. He says churchgoers are those who attend but are living out of a dead orthodoxy or a faith that is merely a Christian veneer on a thoroughly secular worldview or cultural Christians or those who consume rather than contribute wholeheartedly to God's mission within the world. Some of these people may appear to be leaders and stalwarts but are living out of a sense of religious obligation. They can be compared to a group of those who may pay to go watch the football team but, until, but unlike the remnant, they are not on the field, scrapping, tackling, and putting their bodies on the line. I need you to catch this. They are the 83% of Christians who a recent survey revealed don't live with a biblical worldview, i.e., they are not deeply rooted in God. 
100%, y'all. This is similar to the language that we use at our church. We talk about things like a disciple versus a Christian. A disciple is devoted and allegiant to King Jesus. And a Christian loves God, but they aren't formed at their roots. But see, mission comes from identity, and health comes from the input of God's presence. So for a Christian, they do what they are. For a disciple, they do what they are. So Christians won't have deeply rooted lives, and their identities will be more shaped by the media and their self-expression that the culture gives them, rather than their values being placed on the solid word of Christ. So yes, they've done the bare minimum of knowing God, but they are right where Satan wants them ineffective. They are bored, but somehow always tired, overly busy, people pleasers, the influenced and not the influencers, nominal and not necessary, ignorantly opinionated, ghost-like half-selves playing around with the gifts of God while missing him all together. God desires to fill the world with his presence and he wants us to partner with him as we bear witness to his presence in our lives and to the world. That can only happen as we're personally rooted in Christ. Jesus says it this way in John 15, 1 through 8. And I want you to notice a phrase that's going to be repeated over and over and over again. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do... If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my... Did you catch the phrase that was used over and over again? Remain in me. Abide in me. We wonder sometimes why our lives are not changing. It's because we're not abiding. We cannot forget that the pruning can only happen when we've abided in the vine. When we're abiding in Christ, that's when God will begin to take parts of ourselves and says, put those things to death. As Paul would say later in the New Testament, we put the old self off and let Christ put the new on. And so if we can remain in Christ, if we can be with him abiding in the vine, then he will begin to prune us, change us, mold us to be more like him, and ultimately to be fruitful. This is the task of the remnant. Remember something important here. Jesus doesn't seem to care about crowds. You ever notice this as you've read your New Testament? Jesus doesn't seem to care about about the crowds as much as he cares about his 12 closest followers. Now, it's not because the people in the crowd aren't important. And in fact, there are moments where he does speak to the crowd. But this 12 that he's picked out, chosen, selected, they are his chosen remnant. 
They are the chosen few who will become the witnesses of his lordship with their lives and their words. See, Jesus understands a, an important reality. Renewals emerge from leaders who may be positionally weak, but are spiritually powerful. Revivals burst from groups that are small in number, but strong in God's presence. Now, there's a moment right after Jesus feeds the 4,000. This is confusing. He feeds the 5,000, yes, but there's also another moment where he feeds the 4,000. And he tells them, oh, sorry, they want to make him king over Israel. They're about ready to storm the capital, make Jesus king. And he tells them that in order to follow him, they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. These are offensive words to them. The crowd immediately begins to turn away. He looks to his 12 closest disciples and he says to them, will you leave me as well? Peter, good on Peter here, he did the right thing. He says, where would we go? You have the words of life. This is what a remnant knows in their souls, that Jesus has the words of life. The remnant then becomes the heartbeat of what God is doing in the world. They become the force behind reformation and behind renewal. The change we want will only happen as we abide recognizing that Jesus has the words of real life. Napoleon Bonaparte, who's not like Jesus, but this is an example, okay, began conquering the world in the late 18th and early 19th century. He had a vast army to move. Now, the way he got the army to move and receive change was what he called the thirds. He noted that a first third of the army would welcome change. The middle third would move as the first third embraced change. And the last would resist it all the time. By concentrating on the first third, like a worm inching forward, the army would progress. A constant dynamic in the history of the church is the way in which the larger church is renewed by a smaller remnant within the church. What happens is the remnant models the life of Jesus sacrificially, prophetically, and consistently. They resist a life that is not shaped by Jesus, and they then become the heartbeat of the church because what the remnant does influences everyone else. So let me ask you an assessment question this morning. Which third are you? Are you the third that embraces the changes that God wants to make in your life? Or are you the second, third, that sees what other people are doing and sees their renewed life and sees the amazing things that God is beginning to do in them and you want a part of that so you begin to follow them? Or are you the final third that resists change that God wants to make in you, period? Now, I think I know which third God wants us to be. I think he wants us to be the first third, ready for change, and ready to influence the others in our life with the words of life. So here's what the remnant must do. I'm about to blow your mind. They must pray. Prayer is central in every move of God in our world. Prayer is where the real battles are taking place. So the remnant must take up the practice of contending prayer. Now, this type of prayer assumes a posture of earnestness, of seriousness, and of purpose. To contend means to stretch 
or to struggle for something, if we want to see renewal in us and revival from us, then we must contend for God to move, to cry out for God's mercy on behalf of ourselves, on behalf of our communities and our nation. We must stand in the gap on behalf of those that don't recognize the spiritual warfare that's happening all around. We contend for God to go before us and to make a way for his presence to flood the earth in a powerful and new way. This is what will truly separate the remnant from an average churchgoer. One who contends. The remnant will remain faithful, available, spirit-filled, and teachable as they pursue God. And what will happen as they do that is they will produce a continual cycle that self-feeds. And it will produce renewal that will extend out of me to the others of my life. Now, by the way, uh, this is a quick commercial. I hope that you'll join the elder-led prayer time on Wednesdays. This summer, all summer, we're going to do elder-led prayer where you'll come in. And as Jeremy says, this isn't your grandma's prayer meeting, okay? This is a time uh, where you're going to be led through specific things. Uh, the prayers, they're moving, aren't they, Alan? We're, we're moving as we, as we pray. We're praying in small groups, and we're also going to practice other forms of prayer, like silent prayer, individual prayer, corporate prayer. We're going to practice praying through the scripture. We're going to practice all kinds of prayer. What a great way to begin to pattern in our corporate life, as well as in your individual life, time to resist our culture, time to resist the noise and distractions of our lives, and instead to abide with God, to allow him to begin to prune us, to shape us, to be in rhythm and in concert with his heartbeat as we become the heartbeat of the church. So you know what's not in question? That God is moving in our world. He is. What's in question is whether or not we'll be aligned with him and on the forefront of what he's doing through the practices of the alternative way of life in Christ that we've been talking through, I believe God will consider you as a part of those who will not bow down to our culture nor kiss the idol of self. Instead, God will renew you. I can't wait to see the transformation that occurs in you as you dedicate yourself to being with him. In that being, I know that God will be faithful back to you, that he will transform your heart he will fill you with his love, with his peace, with his rest. Someone take a deep breath. With his rest and with his wholeness. I'm thrilled to think about the victories that you'll experience over the sin in your life and over the cultural scripts and the patterns that shallowly form each one of us. Mostly, I can't wait to see the joy that you'll experience in a life completely oriented around being with him. Once we introduce him as the healthy input to our life systems, life becomes a treat. Isn't that an old 50 song? Or life could be a dream. Life could be a dream, sweetheart. Anyways, okay. Now I think God may be asking us the same kind of question that he asked Elijah. What are you doing here? Now, I, I don't think this is a question about Elijah's location. Does that make sense? Like, I don't think God is asking about wh where, where are you physically? Give me your coordinates. I think this is a question about where Elijah is personally. Also, it's a very similar question to what he asked Adam and Eve in the garden. Where are you? 
not location, okay? This is a, a question about where Elijah is personally because, see, his location is merely uh, a pointer to his inner life. See, his, his attitude, his stress, his fear, his exhaustion, they were all symptoms of what was happening on the inside. They were pointing to why he had fled, why he had run away. So I think that God would ask us the same question today. What are you doing here? Many of us are waiting for God to accomplish the miraculous in us and for us. And I think that's a wonderful request to make of God. But more often than not, I think we'll find him in the still small places of our lives rather than in the mighty wind, the fire, and in the earthquake. That's because the time of relational connection is really in the still small moment of his voice. Erica McNair says, just as Psalm 1 describes the righteous person as one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night, we too must make an effort to make time for the Lord. We are strengthened as we listen for and wait on the Lord in the still, quiet moments. Root work is a concerted effort by us to be with God. The remnant does not expect God to change or to do miraculous things in them without the personal connection of presence that comes with effort. Amen? This is what resistance to our world's formation looks like. This is root work. Being with Jesus to do for him in the world. It takes effort. And guess what it also takes? Guts. It takes guts. It takes courage to be a resistor to our culture. It also will take time and practice and concentration and you're not going to nail it right away. I, any of you who have attempted silent prayer these past couple weeks, you know, like me, that it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. And it's a little strange sometimes, trying to quiet my mind to be in God's presence. But this is the work. This is the work. This is where God will begin to root us and transform us into more of an image of Christ. Now, I think we do well to remember, as we're talking about being transformed and making effort for God, I think we do well to remember Paul's encouragement to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3. I urge you then, first of all, that prayers, petitions, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and what? Quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good. And pleases God our Savior. I'm going to use an I statement. I've been yelled at for so long about greatness for God and extreme mission and radical lives. What if the real radical life that God wants us to live isn't one that's in vying for attention, but rather more of God's presence? Maybe what's more important than our relevance and the growth of our influence is our time in being with the Father. The deeply rooted life will distinguish us as the living alternative to our world. And I think the remnant recognizes that more than crazy activity all the time and crazy works all the time, being with God will form and shape us more than anything. The remnant understands this because their heartbeat is in time with God's. Does anybody remember from a couple um, sermons ago how fast God moves? Three miles an hour. God moves at three miles an hour. He's walking. Three miles an hour is the average uh, pace that a person walks. And in our slowing down, we'll finally catch up to God. 
quiet lives, peaceful lives. Imagine what that kind of life might look like. That life will be in heartbeat, sorry, will be in time with the heartbeat of God. Beyond programs and beyond impressive words is a life in Christ marked by the input of his presence. If we want our children to have dynamic relationships with Jesus, then a remnant must live it out. If we want to see our neighbors and communities transformed, then a remnant must live it out. If we want to see personal victory over strongholds, then a remnant must live it out. If we yearn for more of God and revival to break out, then the remnant must live it out. Because there is good news. Jesus is still the hope of the world. And there is always hope on our horizon. So our question is, do we live as though he is? Today can be a day of recommitment, where we've each failed to be a remnant that lives out the life of God in us. You, just plain, normal, average you, you can become more than you are with a relationship with Jesus. You can become the change agent in your family, in your community, and in your world because Jesus has overcome this world and he lives in you. Now, I want you to imagine that God is calling you back from where you've come. He isn't calling us to this kind of life that separates us from what we actually do. God doesn't believe in a sacred and secular split where when you leave church, you become a secular person, or when you leave your job, you become a sacred person. It's all integrated together, and our culture would tell us that they must be separate and will force them apart as hard as they possibly can. You have to be the living alternative to that. God wants to work in you and call you back to your real life. He's calling you to live deeply rooted right where you are right now. You notice that trees can't get up and walk and move to the next place? I mean, maybe in, you know, Tolkien's, you know, Lord of the Rings they can, but, but not in reality. They can't actually move from where they are, so God is not calling you to retreat from your life. He's calling you to immerse yourself within it, to deeply root yourself where you are for the purpose of growth in yourself and the purpose of intertwining with others in this community so that we can bear the fruit as we've been abiding with him. So we need to ask ourselves once again, what are we doing here? And I think maybe another question to follow that up would be, are you content with you right now? I mean, if so, awesome. Continue in that health and continue to grow in God. That's wonderful. But if not then I would invite you to commit to the root work of resisting our cultural scripts, slowing down, Sabbath-keeping, silent prayer, interior examination where you become aware of your emotions and feelings and the things that have happened in your history, truth-telling in love, being with God before doing, and finally, announcing the gospel, and of course, the other spiritual practices that we already know well. God will meet you as you seek him. James tells us in James 4, 8, draw near to God, you finish. This is the promise that we have. 
This is the promise that we have from God, that when we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. He will flood our life systems with health. He will produce within us a move of God that extends from us, from our personal renewal time with him, out towards others. The question is not, can God do it? The question is, are we submitted and ready for it? What are you doing here? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would, would move in us and that you would begin to mold us and to change us. I ask that as we draw near to you, you would become near to us. Help us to be shaped by a time of being with you. This is our ultimate goal. This is our ultimate transformation. It will be time with you. It will be time in your presence because once we're in your presence, renewal will occur. Renew in us. Change in us. Give us a new heart. Give us a new spirit to seek you. Help us to put off the old ways of living. Help us to um, resist our cultural scripts and patterns and messages and instead put on your message, your patterns, your values Help us to put on your life so that your life can be expressed through our lives. Help us to become change agents as we live into this idea of remnant. We will not bow to our culture. We will not kiss the idol of self. Instead, we will bow only to you. Help us to become allegiant to you alone, focusing our eyes and our gaze on you alone, because in doing that, you will lead us and move us from where we are to where you want us to be. Father, make us healthy as we spend time with you. Make us like the tree of Psalm 1. Whatever we do prospers. Help us to bear fruit in season as we abide in you and with you. Give us more and more of your presence so that our roots will grow strong. Impact this church and move us to be a transformational force in our community as we carry forward your presence from our time with you. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor David.